0: We're going to look at John chapter 14 today, so if you'll look there, we'll begin with verse 21. We'll be looking through verse 31, but we're only going to read from verse 21 down through verse 24. So John chapter 14. Last week, just as a reminder, we saw that we don't get to define what love is when it comes to God. He's already defined it. He wrote his definition in blood on a cross, and it went like this. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son, his only begotten son, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it was signed, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. There are a lot of definitions of love that we could use. Someone's defined love as The highly desirable malfunction of the heart, which weakens the brain, causes the eyes to sparkle, the cheeks to glow, blood pressure to rise, and lips to pucker. That's not bad. But it's not God's way of defining love. Robert Heinlein attempted a a more serious definition. Love is that condition in which the happiness of another person is essential to your own. But even that misses the mark. God thinks of love in terms of action, not just condition. And that action, the action that identifies love, is the act of giving oneself to meet the need of another. That's what God did. That's what love is. We don't get to define what God's love for us is. We don't even get to define what our love for God is. We don't get to say love for God is going to church or love for God is the thrill that you feel up and down your spine when your favorite worship song is played or love for God is reading the Bible or doing good deeds. We say we love God, but what do we mean by that? How are we defining our terms? Over the years, I've heard quite a few people say something like this in spite of everything i still love my husband or i still love my wife but by what definition do they still love do they mean they still feel affection do they mean they still feel desire perhaps they mean that they feel bad if something tragic happened and i wonder the same thing when i hear people talk about loving god do they feel affection for god Do they sometimes feel a desire to be close to him? Maybe they mean they'd feel bad if they learned that he didn't exist. What does it mean for a person? What does it mean for you to love God? That's what this text addresses. Jesus was once asked, I was just reading this the other day in my devotions, what he thought was the Bible's first greatest command. Without hesitation, he answered in the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Love the Lord your God, With all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, I think one reason that that's the first and greatest command is that it fits the way God designed us to be. And when we're not following the first and greatest command, we're not what we were designed to be. He made us to be lovers above all else. To receive his love fully, and to love him in return completely. We were designed to love God the way an eagle is designed to fly. If we don't love God, it's not because of some design flaw. It's because we've been injured. The Bible calls that injury sin. If we do not or cannot love God, all kinds of things start to go wrong in our lives. Just as things go wrong for an eagle that can't fly. If the eagle can't fly, it can't find food and it becomes malnourished and weak. If the eagle can't fly, it can't protect itself, and it becomes prey. If we can't love God, we become spiritually malnourished and weak. If we can't love God, we become vulnerable to spiritual powers that prey upon us. We were designed to be God lovers, but we don't get to choose what kind, what that love looks like. I once heard about a guy who shot arrows at the side of his barn. He hit it here, he hit it up there, he hit it all over the place. And then, after all his arrows were spent, he took a bucket of paint and he painted a target around each arrow so that it looked like he hit right in the middle of every bullseye. We can do that when it comes to loving God. We can do whatever it is we do and then paint the bullseye around that. I go to church. That means I love God. I hit the bullseye. I read the Bible sometimes. Another bullseye. I gave money to the paralyzed veterans of America. If that doesn't mean I love God, what does? But that's not how love for God or love for anyone else works. We already know what shows love for God because Jesus told us and because Jesus showed us let's look at our text John chapter 14 this is verse 21 whoever has my commands and obeys them he is the one that loves me he who loves me will be loved by my father and let me stop for just a second remember I told you a few weeks ago that the apostle Philip who never seems to quite know what's going on in all the gospel the apostle Philip says to Jesus Lord just show us the father that'll be enough for us Make God appear here, and then we'll we'll be satisfied. Well, that happened just before this. And now Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And my Father will love you. And I, too, will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him, Philip, everybody else, we will come to him and make our home with him. He who doesn't love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All right, so where's the bullseye, really, when it comes to loving God? Jesus tells us, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one that loves me. He does not say, whoever teaches or preaches in my name, he's the one who loves me. Nor does he say, whoever casts out demons in my name, or whoever heals the sick in my name, is the one who loves me. Love involves action, but not just any action. Doing religious deeds is not love. This description of love is not something novel. We find it as early as the Ten Commandments where God ties loving him together with obeying his commands. He promises blessing to generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. We have the same kind of thing in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 10, 7, verse 9, 10, verse 12, 11, verse 1, verse 13, verse 22, 19, verse 9, Nehemiah chapter 1, Daniel chapter 9. This is nothing new. In verse 15, Jesus told his friends, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is it any wonder that Jesus told his fledgling church in what we commonly call the Great Commission to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and by teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you? Do you see what's going on there? Jesus instructed his church to teach people how to love him. The Great Commission is really about the great commandment. In 1 John 2.5 we read, If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. 1 John 5.3 puts it this way, This is love for God, to obey his commands. And then adds, And his commands are not burdensome. Though, of course, they seem that way to people who don't love God. Look at verse 21 more closely. Jesus says rather emphatically in Greek, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one that loves me. Now, identifying love with keeping commands is not novel as we just saw, but the way Jesus expresses this is there's no place else in scripture that I can think of where a person is said to have commands. What does it mean to have his commands? The one who has my commands. The verb's a present tense participle, which suggests something ongoing. The person Jesus is describing is not merely someone who does one of his commands, sometimes. It's not someone who knows where to look up his commands in the Bible. It's not just familiar with what Jesus has said, he not only knows them, he has them. They're his. He's made Jesus' commands his own. They're his possession. He owns them. Making the commandments one's own doesn't just happen. It won't happen because you go to church, or read the Bible. I have a favorite performance of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. It's by Alfred Brendel. Alfred Brendel's brilliant. He made the Moonlight Sonata his own, but he didn't do that just by listening to it. He didn't do it just by reading the score. He made it his own by understanding what Beethoven meant, what he felt, and what he desired. He made it his own by practicing it until he felt it in his fingers and in his toes. Brendel has the Moonlight Sonata. But only because he valued having it, intended to have it, and did what was necessary to have it. And when he had it, the sonata was no longer just notes on a page, but a burning reality in his heart. And so it is for the person who has Jesus' commands. They're no longer just words in a book, but a vibrant, pulsating reality in his or her heart. Having them is more than doing them. Just like having the Moonlight Sonata is more than playing the notes. But doing them is the start of having them. So let me ask, do you have Jesus' commands? Any of them, in the way I just described? Can you recall his commands? Can you recall, say, five of them? Have you ever intentionally practiced a command of Jesus? For example, the command to pray for those who mistreat you or to do to others as you would have them do to you until you had that command, the way Brendel has the Moonlight Sonata? Consider this a challenge. Get Jesus' commands. Make them your own. To having his commands, Jesus now adds obeying his commands is a description of the person who loves him. There's more than one word in Greek that the New International Version translates, obey. This one is often translated keep and comes from a root that means to keep watch or to keep an eye on someone or something. The person who loves Jesus always has an eye on his commands. He or she thinks and different situations what did jesus say about this what word of jesus is there for this situation now if you're thinking why would i want to live that way that sounds terribly restrictive all i can say is jesus commands are to you what wings are to an eagle his commands are not intended to limit you not the real you anyway only the false you the sham fearful you Jesus' commands unlock doors and open up possibilities otherwise unknown. Now look at the rest of that verse. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I like that so much. I have three sons, my three sons, and I know all of them to be true and loving men. If you want me to love you, you'd better love my sons. Hate my sons, and you and I are not going to get along well. And so it is with God and his son, Jesus. Love Jesus and the Father will love you. That's what Jesus says. Love me and the Father's going to love you. I know that's how that works. You'll be a favorite of God's. Ignore Jesus and the Father will probably ignore you. At least for a time. Hate Jesus and you will wish that the Father would ignore you. But look at what happens for those who love Jesus. They're loved by the Father. The Son then joins the party and loves that person too. And look at the last part of that sentence, verse 21. He shows himself to that person. So here's the progression. Love Jesus by having and keeping his commands, and the Father will love you, and jesus will love you and he will show himself to you these people live in an assurance of god's love they trust his grace they see the lord throughout their days and weeks with spiritual eyes they know he's with them know that he's life know that he's overcome the world they're the fearless ones who cower neither before the challenges of life nor the hardships of death. They're the joyful ones. And they could be us. That's what God intends for us. Now, if you're having trouble getting a grip on this, don't feel bad. The apostles themselves were having trouble taking it in. In verse 22, Judas John hurries to make clear this is not Judas the traitor, but the other one. Ask for clarification. And by the way, this is the only time this Judas is mentioned in the Gospel of John. He's mentioned once in Acts, once in Luke, where we learn that he has a dad named James. Some people think that this apostle is the same one as the one called Thaddeus in Matthew and Mark. And you can understand why, after what had happened, This Judas might rather go by his middle name or by a nickname than by his given name. So this Judas asked the question, and I think probably most of the apostles were thinking the same thing. Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? In Greek, a literal translation of that would be, Lord, what's happened that you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? Judas and the other disciples thought something must have come up because they like all the jewish people took for granted that messiah would show himself to the world they expected him to overthrow the kingdoms of the earth but that's not what judas was hearing jesus say so he thought something must have happened to change the plan but jesus makes clear that this has always been the plan it was never his intention to win the world by force but to win it by love To win it by the love the Father has for the Son, the Son has for the Father, that both have for their people and that their people have for them. Territory can be won by arms. People can only be won by love. So Jesus explains the plan to Judas and, and the other disciples. Verse 23, If anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and will come to him and make our home with him. Instead of occupying the world by force, God intends to occupy people's hearts by love. He's going to set up outposts all over the earth, everywhere his people are. Wherever a man or woman who loves Jesus lives, there the Father and Son make their dwelling by the Spirit. That's Jesus' plan for conquering the world. And there is no plan B and it all hinges on once you know it the two greatest commandments love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbors yourself those commands so impossible for us fallen broken sinners become possible when the loving father and the loving son Make their home with us. But Jesus wants to reinforce his point. Love's not a matter of religious feelings or even religious deeds, it's a matter of obeying his commands. Verse 24: He who does not love me, it's again, a present tense participle, ongoing action, will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own, they belong to my Father who sent me. And as if to drive the point deeper, Jesus ends this session, verse 31, by telling his disciples that even his love is expressed in terms of obedience. I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father's commanded me. Now, lest we make the mistake of thinking that we can, by sheer willpower, obey Jesus' commands, and by doing so, bring about all the blessings he's promised, let me remind you of what we saw last week about the nature of love. Love always involves giving yourself. You can give your obedience to a command without giving yourself. You can give your time without giving yourself. You can give your money without giving yourself. But you cannot love God or, frankly, anyone else without giving yourself. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller, tells this fable I want to share with you. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, the king said, Wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this. And he said, My, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse." the only reason to give God stuff money prayers time is if the stuff can carry our hearts to God he wants us as Don often reminds us at the offering time not our stuff when we obey Jesus' commands we give ourselves to him That is, we love him. Now I want to wind this up by issuing a kind of disclaimer. I've been talking about our love for God. And you may be thinking, I don't, maybe I don't even love God. I love him enough. I don't know if I love God enough. Well, let me put your mind at ease. You don't. Often we hear preachers say or books tell us that our love for God must be passionate and deep and pure, and they kind of put us on a guilt trip. Our love must exceed. Our love for him must exceed all our other loves. We hear them say, you need to love God more than you love anything else. But we don't see any way to do that except to love other things and other people less. But that's not what God means. Yes, we should love God more. But we can't do that by loving other people less. If we love people and things less, our ability to love things and people, including God, shrinks. So we're in this quandary. It seems the only way that we can love God more than we love people and things is to reduce our love for people and things. But if we do that, our love for God decreases as well. And the only love that really grows is love for that false sham self we can't love God more by loving people less but what can we do about it we just don't know and maybe we feel like there's no hope for us but there is hope and here's what you need to know God does not look for us to start out with a love for him that is deep and pure and exceeds all the other loves in our lives I mean, I know we hear that from preachers all the time, but that's not, he's not looking for you to start that way. Instead, he looks for real love, even if it's small, even if it's impure and mixed with selfishness. Mo- frankly, most of our love to God is like a baby smile at his mother. It doesn't indicate some profound love. It's probably gas, not some deep love. But the mother responds to that smile with even more love for her baby. And her baby responds back. When we respond to God with true love, however weak and impure, he responds with even more love for us. Not that he loves us more, but we're able to see it more. His love comes always before ours. And it makes ours possible. We love him, St. John said, because he first loved us. Our love for Him grows in the atmosphere of His love for us the way a flower grows in the sun. When it comes to loving God, it's a mistake to focus our attention on our love, which at best leads to discouragement, and at worst to hypocrisy. But focus rather on His love for you and for all of us. His love expressed in Christ's self giving sacrifice. This is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his one and only Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now let's pray. God, every time we look at our love for you closely, honestly, We see how adulterated it is with self-love. How we fooled ourselves into thinking we're better than we are. But Lord, every time we look at you and forget about ourselves, our love for you grows. So help us look at you. Help us to look at you in your Son. And see your love for us on a cross. And do this not because we deserve it. But because your son Jesus Christ does. And I ask this in his name. Amen.